Hello and welcome to episode number 178 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode, we hear from Jonathan Parry, Professor of Modern British History at Cambridge and the author of Promised Lands, the British and the Ottoman Middle East, published by Princeton University Press. The book charts Britain's interest in the Middle East from the Napoleonic Wars to the Crimean War in the 1850s. It explores British attitudes to the Ottomans, how the Ottomans administered the region and the various strategies that the British employed to engage with the local population of Arabs, Kurds, Christians, Jews and myriad others. At one point, Jonathan Parry quotes former Prime Minister William Gladstone saying the English piously believe themselves to be a peaceful people. Nobody else is of the same belief. And indeed, the book can be read as a chronicle of shame in many ways, full of imperial skullduggery, betrayal and naked self-interest. But it also includes many counter examples illustrating how various British actors had conflicting interests and took contradictory actions. So it certainly complicates the idea that the British operated a grand imperial plan with the single minded intention to dominate the world. Before we get started with the interview, remember that you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, and you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout, and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and e-books. If you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then good news because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. So to become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, 3 euros or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, 3 euros or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Jonathan Parry. His book argues that the British opening to the Middle East was born of anxiety about protecting the British imperial position in India, which was really inflamed by Napoleon's invasion of Egypt. So I started by asking Jonathan Parry whether we can say that protecting British interests in India was the reason why the British first started deepening their interest in the Middle East in the late 18th century. Yes, very much so. I think it's it's driven by what we now call geopolitics, by a desire to safeguard the two routes between Europe and India at that time, which were the routes through Egypt and the Red Sea and through Baghdad and the Persian Gulf, because obviously Britain was a naval power and any rivals were also primarily interested in 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 the, the naval routes to india so so in a way 
we, we need to start not by thinking about the Ottomans at all. It's just that these are lands which the Ottomans happen to be the sovereign governors of. I think the British don't really pay much attention to the fact that the, the Ottomans are ruling them. I think they think much more in terms of how can we get local influence in these areas to prevent the French in the first instance with Napoleon and later the Russians from getting the sort of uh, local power that will seriously inconvenience India. Partly it's about actual physical attacks on India, but also perhaps more subtly, it's about avoiding the risk of increasing the defence of India, if you like, increasing the cost of defending India, because India was already quite an expensive thing. There's a lot of debate at home about whether it was a valued possession or not. Most people thought it was, but the last thing the British wanted to do was to bring India into the European sphere, if you like, and make it vulnerable to, to European attack, because that would make it much more costly. So they really want to continue to isolate India. And so they see the Middle East increasingly as a buffer, really, to make sure that nobody from Europe gets anywhere near India. Now, let's talk about the Eastern question, because that was the question of the fate of the Ottoman Empire and the idea of the European powers propping up the Ottoman state throughout the 19th century, because they were worried about the consequences of its collapse and they were fearful about the expanding Russian Empire, expanding its influence. So again, this question of geopolitics, basically dragging various powers into the Middle East, willingly or unwillingly. So there was this fierce rivalry, basically, with Russia and a perceived need to oppose Russian illiberalism. So what is the, the Eastern question and what does your book have to say about it? Well, that's a very good question, a very complicated question in a way. You introduced ideology there when you talked about liberalism, and I think that becomes part of it, but I think it's only a part of it, and, and it, it takes quite a long time to become part of it. I think you know, the Eastern question starts, well, it does start with Napoleon, but once Napoleon is defeated, and, and, and once Napoleon, well, even before he's defeated by Russia, of course, he, he has to give up his idea of conquering the Middle East and India by about 1808, 1809. But then, as you say, Russia becomes the issue in the 1820s. The Eastern question then becomes part of European politics because Russia is a threat in Europe or perceived by Britain and France and Austria as a threat in Europe, as well as in the Middle East. So it's partly about containing Russian power in general everywhere, but it's also about this particular area, this vital area, because of the, the strategic influence of Constantinople, of the Black Sea, of the routes to Asia. And there was a general agreement, although there was an attempt to find agreement about how to handle the Ottoman Empire by the powers of Europe from 1815, from the Congress of Vienna which involved really saying everything that we do in the East, we need to agree on among ourselves. We need to have a consolidated policy. Now, this was not always very easy. And for a long time, there were all sorts of tensions about how to find it, for example, with Greece in the 1820s, when, when, when Greece desired to become independent of the Ottomans. It takes a long time to work out an agreed policy. But nonetheless, the, the idea that there should be an agreement between the powers, that drives the first phase of the Eastern question. And I suppose what my book contributes to it from a British point of view is to say that there is a Tory view of the Eastern question in Britain, and then there's a liberal view which emerges in the 1840s particularly. 
the Tories who are in power in Britain until 1830 continue to have an influence and, and they're very much in favour of this idea that you, you settle the Ottoman sphere, you settle the Middle East, you settle Eastern Europe, all the Ottoman lands, you settle them by agreement with the other powers. But increasingly, the Liberals in Britain find that a very painful thing to do because they don't agree with the other powers. They don't agree particularly with Russia and Austria about European politics. So the Liberals, particularly Palmerston, who's foreign secretary in the 1830s and then after 1846, he takes the view that you can't just agree on everything with Russia, that Russia is using all its power in the East to get advantages for itself. And particularly when it comes to the Ottoman Empire, Russia is using its border with the Ottomans and its military power and its threatening political presence, it's using and its religious influence over the Greek Orthodox population of the Ottoman Empire, it's using all that to get influence at Constantinople, which is itself the problem, that, that the Ottoman Empire surviving in the way that it's surviving is actually becoming more and more uh, a dependency, a poodle, if you like, of Russia. And so what you need is to develop a different sort of approach to the Eastern question. And this is what Britain and France do in the 1840s, in which they, they take a more proactive role at Constantinople itself in order to basically try to persuade or force the Ottomans to become a different sort of power, to become a more liberal regime, which they say is rescuing it from the pressure of Russia to be the sort of regime that Russia wants. Uh, so basically, the Eastern question in the 1840s and 1850s becomes a war over what sort of regime the Ottoman Empire should be if it is to play the part in stabilising Europe that Britain and France want. So the Liberals in Britain and France see liberalising the Ottoman Empire as part of the battle against Russian illiberalism in, in Europe. And it's that difference of opinion about how you improve the Ottoman Empire or how you how the Ottoman Empire should be governed that leads to the Crimean War in 1854. Yeah, and the Crimean War ended with the Treaty of Paris in 1856. This basically made the Black Sea a neutral space closed to all warships, and it also admitted the Ottoman Empire to the concert of Europe. You give a, a, an interesting perspective on, I think, at one point you say, quote, though British sympathy for Ottoman rule in Europe was limited, fragile and declining, upholding Ottoman sovereignty in the Middle East remained of great benefit to Britain. It provided a cheap and effective way to maintain British influence in that region, while ensuring that France and Russia were kept out of it. The history of British engagement with the Middle East after 1854 shows that it was much easier to consolidate its position on that basis before 1914 than to be the imperialist itself, as Britain became after the First World War. So that's a really interesting point, touching on the period just after really your book focuses on. But could you just expand a bit here on some of those themes? Yes. First of all, I think that as far as the Balkans were concerned, the Ottoman Balkans, Britain or most people in Britain never really regarded that as a core British interest. And so you know, France and Russia and Austria had much more concern over over the detail of the Balkans. I think that changes a bit later, but but you know that I think that is fundamentally true. I, I do believe very strongly that the core story of the British and the Ottomans is is really always focused on the Middle East itself. And so after 1856, the, the, the British are quite happy with Ottoman rule 
over the parts of the Middle East that, that the Ottomans are ruling because the British feel that they now have enough influence at Constantinople to partner the, the Ottoman ministers in, in ruling that area quite well. The British feel they have an independent influence, an, econo- an independent economic influence and independent naval influence, which gives them clout. They, they can't be ignored. And, and therefore, they're, they're more or less content with, with Ottoman rule. I don't think we really need to talk about the Balkans after 1856, because you know, that's probably a different concern. But you know, I think that most people in Britain share the view by the 1860s and 1870s that the Turk cannot rule the Balkan Christians, um, that it's it's offensive for Muslims to rule European Christians. It's, it's not working, it's creating instability. That becomes a matter on which the British and most Europeans agree. So, so when it comes to Britain and the Middle East, they don't really need to worry so much about Christian influences. I think the, the British accept Ottoman Islam within the Middle Eastern context. They're quite happy to do so, as long, of course, as there is a, a, enough of a humanitarian policy to make sure that the minority Christians and other minority sects are tolerated and, 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 and treated with basic respect. That, that's, that's a concern that the British always maintain. But because the British already have so much experience of of governing India, they're quite happy with Ottoman rule over the Middle East. And, you know, they they encourage the Hajj from India to Arabia through the steamships from the 1860s onwards. So, yes, there, there comes to be a common perspective, if you like, I think, in the later 19th century about the Middle East. A major theme of the book is that the British ambassador in Istanbul was often struggling against the odds to maintain good relations with the Ottoman authorities and therefore had a quite different perspective from British agents and officers uh, across the Middle East. So Britain was pursuing its own aims, let's say, in the Middle East, pretty much irrespective of the desires uh, of the Ottoman regime. So could you just talk about that, you know, that clash of perspectives between the ambassadors and the British decision makers, essentially? Yes, it it all comes from the the emphasis I have on on the chronological development of the British influence, because the British influence starts at a time when the Ottoman rulers are themselves very weak, particularly in this area, most in Egypt and in Arabia and in Baghdad. So there's no need to worry about central Ottoman power in those places in 1800-1810. And so if the British want to try to keep out any potential French or later Russian influence, then they have to work with the local rulers, the local pashas, Muhammad Ali in Egypt, Pasha of Baghdad, the Arab chiefs, and so on and so forth. And so that mentality gets absolutely ingrained in all the officers who have anything to do with British policy in the Middle East. And it's also the view in India, because most of the the officers to Baghdad anyway and Arabia are sent out from India. So they don't have any great experience of dealing with the Ottomans in Constantinople. And the other problem about Ottoman rule for a long time is that because the British in general worry that the Ottoman Sultan and his ministers are susceptible to pressure from either the French or the Russians, both of whom have been involved in Constantinople politics for centuries, or at least the French have and the Russians, you know, for a hundred years. The the British worry that 
they themselves don't have anywhere near as much power in Constantinople at court as the French and the Russians do. And therefore, they can't really compete with that. And there are various instances I give in, in, in the book about that, that in 1810, in Baghdad, later in elsewhere, in Arabia, the British can never really trust the Ottomans from Constantinople to, to send out the right messages to the Middle East, because they always think that the French and the Russians are, are behind them, are, are twisting their policy. And this remains the case for a long time, it only really changes then with the Tanzimat after 1839, the Tanzimat policy of strengthening Ottoman central power. Now, this is a policy which is supported by the British embassy in Constantinople. It's supported partly because increasing central Ottoman power over these areas will also increase the power of the British embassy. But in the Middle East, the Tanzimat is not really thought to be necessary by the local British officers. It's not thought to be necessary in Egypt or Baghdad. It's not thought to make any sense, really. The, the British have their own ways already of winning local influence, and, and they win local influence by protecting or claiming to protect local tribes, local groups who are apparently in need of protection. And this increases the bargaining power, the leverage of the British. They say, look, you're misgoverning the Yazidi, for example, in Kurdistan. We will come in and protect the Yazidi. You need to take notice of us because that's what we're doing. And they say all this to the local, the local governors, the local pashas. And so uh, as a result of this British ability to exercise influence through local politics, basically through being the mediators of local political disputes. The local officers don't welcome the intrusion of central power, either by the Sultan or by the British ambassador. There's a particular case here in Egypt where the British, are very the, the local British consul, is very used to getting on generally well with Muhammad Ali for most of the time. Uh, then they fall out in the late 1830s. But, but fundamentally, there are enormous influences, there are enormous common interests between the British in Egypt itself and the Egyptian regime. They're both interested in developing the economy. They're both interested in developing the transit of, of goods and people through Egypt. And the British also managed to protect the, the people that they are looking after, the local groups that are receiving protection from them. The British are uh, used to looking after them without needing to invoke any Tanzimat-type philosophy. And so when Stratford Canning, the British ambassador in Constantinople, tries to encourage the regime in Constantinople to impose the Tanzimat on Egypt, in the late 1840s, 1850s, he's resisted by the British consul in Egypt, who says, if you impose the Tanzimat on Egypt, then it will weaken the influence of the Egyptian rulers. It will weaken law and order in Egypt. It will weaken our ability to build a railway across Egypt. It will create anarchy in Egypt. It will do all these things that actually will do no good at all to either Egypt or British influence. And, and then he falls back on the argument that the Sultan can't rule Egypt. Sultans have never really been able to rule Egypt. So Egypt is a very good example of how the local consuls in the area are very resistant to the imposition of, of, of sultanic power. But the same is also true in Baghdad. So yes, that is one of my, my themes. Now, there was a, a quote that I've noted here, which uh, was really interesting. I thought, you say at one point, quote, after 
1798, most local British officials formed the view that the Ottoman authorities were incapable of providing good government because of institutionalised corruption and a short-termist approach to land management. British agents tended to see the Ottomans as imperialists and themselves as helping to secure local justice. They wanted to offer protection where necessary to the Arabs, to the Lebanese and Kurdish mountaineers and to the Jews of Palestine. They saw present-day overtaxing pashas as the latest in a series of invaders who had destroyed the region's potential. And that's a, I thought, fascinating and uh, elegant way, really, of um, justifying what in most cases was pretty naked self-interest. Could you just talk about that kind of perspective that isn't very often, I don't think, referred to in a lot of the literature? Yes. Um, I mean, you're quite right, incidentally, that I, I, I don't want to give the impression that I'm idealistic about it. I mean, I, I do think there is a lot of naked self-interest in, in, in most of the British activity that, that I hope comes across very strongly in the book. But one of the themes of the book is, is just to look at how the British position themselves and, and, and how they presented their own interests in, in the area. And, and this is one of the major themes. From a very early point, they adopt all the stereotypes of Ottoman corruption. Now, you know, it's it's not for me to say what truth there was in them. I, I studiously avoid going into the question of how accurate they were. I mean, there are all these stories that they report back home about the amounts of money, the sheer amounts of money that the Pashas were taking out of, of the area. But yes, I, I think you could charitably describe it as a clash between two economic worldviews, because the underlying story here is that British officials confronted with, say, the deserts of Mesopotamia, were always aware of their biblical past, aware of the fact that they had once, you know, they had been very rich, fertile lands. They created a vast amount of prosperity for the ancient empires. And so they were scratching their heads, why is this not the case now? Why has it declined? And so they naturally, there's a natural tendency to blame the Ottomans all the time for misgovernment in that sense, for extracting value from the land rather than investing capital in irrigation, for example. So this is a contrast, incidentally, between Egypt and Baghdad, that they point to Muhammad Ali in Egypt and they say, you know, he's not a perfect ruler by any means, but he's much more effective in, in terms of, of working out how to get money out of Egypt. And the fact that most of it goes to, to himself and to a small clique is maybe unfortunate. But, but nonetheless, this contrast between Egypt, which seems to be the best run part of the area, as far as the British are concerned, and say Baghdad, uh, which is you know, largely still surrounded by desert at this point, it creates this ground for arguing that, yes, it's the Pashas who are to blame. So that's one part of it, because, of course, the big issue for the British always is, why is the Ottoman Empire apparently not able to, to resurrect itself? You know, if, if you're a 19th century capitalist, then you'll have all sorts of expectations for how countries do that. And it's all about capital investment. So, so that's why the British are so critical of the Ottomans. And then as far as protecting these minorities, again, I mean, it is very clearly, I think, the self-interest that, as I said uh, earlier, that they, they're concerned to increase their own influence as middlemen, as mediators between the local authorities, the, the Pashas and these other groups. But if you take the, the Pashalik of Baghdad, for example, large parts of the Pashalik are not governable by the Pasha himself in the 1830s and 1840s. The Arab tribes 
have a lot of power practically to determine whether people can get through on the roads or the rivers. So it makes a lot of sense for the British not only to, to build up their own power by talking to the Arabs, but also if they want, if, if some British people want to come in and try to develop the economy, then it seems that getting on with the Arabs is an essential way of doing that. So they do see themselves as mediating between the, the tribes and the Ottoman elite. And particularly in Baghdad, there is quite a lot of writing about this elite being completely clueless because they have no natural bond with the people of the area, the people of Mesopotamia, the, the Arabs and the Kurds and so on. Now, whether that's true or not, you know, that, that's not for me to say, but that is a very strongly held British belief. What about the importance of uh, Christianity? In the book, you downplay the importance of Christianity as a major motivating factor for British officials' activities in the Middle East. Could you just sketch out that argument for us? Yes, it's it's an argument that I'm, I'm pretty confident about as far as British officials are concerned. But at the same time, I do want to make the point that there's a big constituency of opinion at home in Britain, which does see the Middle East as a Christian space. And so in a way, the book is about a tension between those two different ways of seeing the Middle East. So most British officials, well, first of all, to start with, they, they tend to come from India and, and they are used to governing Muslims, thinking about Muslims. They're quite irritated, many of them, about the influence, the political influence that missionaries claim. They all seem to get in the way of pragmatic dealings in these places. But also it's just the Christians in large parts of the Middle East are so small in number apart from the ones who are already protected by other powers, that uh, it's very difficult for the British to see Christians outside that schema. For example, in, in Jerusalem, Christians are mostly protected either by Russia in the case of the Greek Orthodox or in the case of the monastic establishments by France and sometimes by Austria. So the British have no incentive really to be sympathetic to those demands. And to some extent, they take up the Jews of Jerusalem or try to take up the Jews of Jerusalem as a counterweight to that. But that's a fraught business because the Russians are also interested in protecting the Jews. And, and the more that British missionaries try to encourage the protection of the Jews, the more the Ottoman rulers in, in Jerusalem take against the British. So again, the British officers try to be very pragmatic and try not to become too influenced by the, the concerns of the local Jews. So on the whole, Christianity is a real problem if you're trying to think about how to stabilise these areas, whereas the British have much more practical involvement with the Arabs from a very early stage. They're very dependent on local Arab communication networks and local Arab food networks, supply networks in the war against France. They become quite confident that as long as they pay the Arabs well, that they'll get all the food and they'll get all the cooperation that they need. So they, you know, it, it, it's, it's a rather pragmatic assumption on their part about that. And so I think that sort of semi-understanding with Arab couriers goes back a long way and, and is much more deep-rooted than the, the very complex issue of local Christians. But then when the British public get interested in the area, which is really in, in the late 1830s and 1840s, then naturally they tend to see it, or particularly they see Palestine as the Holy Land, but also they become interested in Christian groups in other parts of the Middle East 
particularly the Nestorians in Kurdistan. And so you get a lot of missionary interest in these areas. Could this be the nucleus of a revival of Christianity? That's what they're always hoping, that Christianity was born there. It spread across Asia, spread through Africa, at least in, in the imagination of the, the more enthusiastic missionaries. And so missionaries want to try to rekindle that flame. And so then the issue becomes how far do, do the British officers encourage them? And, and so my book goes into some detail about that. I mean, basically, I say they, they briefly get swayed by that idea, but they quickly realise that it's politically very disadvantageous. So they drop it. Now, the British relationship with the Kurds is a fascinating and multifaceted aspect in all this. And you have a section in the book on this subject, and you devote quite a bit of space to Claudius Rich, who's a very colourful character, the British consul at Baghdad in the 1810s. And he deeply admired the Kurds and uh, also the more mysterious Yazidis. He basically romanticised the Kurds in your telling due to the perceived purity of their mountain lifestyle. Indeed, he compared their life to that of uh, the Scottish clans. So British involvement with the Kurds would in later years obviously become much more significant. But Rich shows some of these familiar myths that even persist until today in nascent form. So could you just talk about the whole British approach to the Kurds in this era and how it really laid the groundwork for later years? Yes, I, th I think there are actually two different points of view, but but certainly it, it's quite right to pick up on, on Rich, who was the British representative in Baghdad in the 1810s. And he has very few friends, and he is very concerned to create a, an impact and to have influence with the, the Pasha of Baghdad. And he comes to see that the Kurds in the border province of Suleimania, the border with Persia, are a, a very useful leverage here. Again, you can take the, the cynical view and say that he's primarily concerned with, with politics, or you can take a more romantic view. I think it's a combination of the two, because Rich becomes very hostile to the, the, the Ottomans in Baghdad, in, in, as I said, the sort of normal stereotype of Ottoman decadence, Ottoman fatalism, Ottoman brutality. And then he goes to the mountains in Suleimania first in 1819. And he does fall in love with the lifestyle. And it, it probably is connected with, with what you mentioned, the, the Scottish Highlands. His, his wife, who accompanied him, was the daughter of Sir James Mackintosh, who was well-known Scottish historian from the Highlands. So they tend to see a contrast between the natural purity of the sort of mountain lifestyle and, and the decadence of the towns. But also they'd see the, the Babans, the, the Sulemania Kurds, as in a way proto-Europeans because they seem to have a much more loving relationship. Women have much more role in the family and they love their children and they only have one wife and which, which responds to all these things. But I, I think you know, whatever your view about the romanticism of it, undoubtedly he's also interested in maintaining the practical independence of the Baban Kurds against the oppression of, on the one hand, the Baghdad Pasha, but on the other hand, the Persians, because they do want to try to create an independent or semi-independent realm in Suleimania. And they're being frustrated by the power plays within the family that are being exploited by both sides, by both Baghdad and the Persians. So Rich comes to argue that Suleimania should basically be left to its own devices. 
And so you can see him as a sort of a defender of Kurdish proto-independence, if you like. But it is bound up also with this is the way to increase British influence as, as the mediator between these two sides. And then later in the 1840s, Layard, when he goes to do the excavation in Nineveh, he also becomes interested in the Kurds. And he also respects the Babans, actually just at the time when their influence is finally being weakened by the, the Baghdad regime. And at this point, the, the argument becomes more economic. The argument becomes that the Baban leader at the time can be induced to see the benefits of economic development, that he understands the benefits of capital investment, and that basically he will be more susceptible to British commercial influence. So there's that argument as well, which comes across in the 1840s. But with Layard, it's slightly more complicated because though he's a fan of the Babans, he's not so much a fan of the Kurds further north. And that's because he, by this time, has become very interested in the Nestorian Christians. So when the Kurds in you know, Kurdistan proper, north of Mosul, are apparently engaged on this war against Nestorian Christians, then Layard becomes a supporter of the Christians against the Kurds, which is by far the, the, the more common view in the 1840s. So the British respect for the Kurds is conditional always. It's conditional, I think, on whether it's to British advantage. Um, but it also, to some extent, depends on their relationship with the Persians and their relationship to the local Christians. Because the Nestorians are not really an issue for Rich in the 1810s. They become an issue for Layard in the 1840s. And what about the Arabs? Because British alliances with Arabs or Arab tribes to undermine the Ottoman Empire obviously has a particular pungency in Turkey today. It's often invoked to condemn both the British and Arabs as untrustworthy and scheming. And your book makes clear that ideas of forging such partnerships with certain Arab tribes for mutual benefits have a long history and go back deep into the 19th century. It's not just an early 20th century thing. So could you just talk about that aspect of the research? Yes, it, it really leaps out at you as a major theme, though, of course, it, it's because there isn't really anybody else in large parts of the Middle East to talk to if you're not naturally fond of the, the Ottoman central government or you don't believe the Ottoman central government is, is strong enough to govern. I, th I think it goes back to the fact that the Arabs are actually essential if you're trying to achieve any sort of stability. You need to work with them. The British are by no means omnipotent at this period, rather the reverse. They have no power inland. Their only power is on the coasts through their ships. So the British are interested in building alliances with the Arabs, but most of them, most of the time, don't want to go inland very much. So, for example, with the Wahhabi, the Indian government, the Bombay government in particular, is very anxious not to offend the Wahhabi, as indeed is Claudius Rich in Baghdad, because they see them as a force, an inland force, which there's no way that they can overthrow. There's no way that the British can do anything about that. So there's a wariness about the Wahhabi. Where the British see that they have more power relative to the Arabs is on the coast. So you get the bombardments of Ras al-Khaimah in, in 1819, when they appeared to be interfering with British trade. So the British can behave very badly to Arabs when they see them as not 
benefiting their own interests. But for a lot of the time, they regard the Arabs as, as the only way into any sort of influence in the region. And, and then this does lead to a certain amount of comparison with the Ottomans. And, and part of it comes back to this point that the Ottomans are the invaders, that they're not local, that they don't understand local culture, whereas the Arabs obviously do. And part of it comes, I think, from the fact that you can have a commercial relationship with the Arabs, you can actually pay them for things and they'll deliver things. And, and the British like this, uh, makes them feel that they're, they're on the same wavelength. So uh, most of it is fairly pragmatic of that sort. But it is, it is, I would say, very clear that there is a, a preference for Arab culture over Ottoman culture in the lands of the Middle East. And then in a minority of cases, you get it going further. You, you get this, this curious stereotype emerging of the, the Briton who goes native, really. And I do see this particularly in the Indian Navy. The Indian Navy was a, a curious institution because in the Indian Navy, you spent a lot of time going around the coasts of Arabia doing surveys. And so you're dependent on good relations with the local Arab tribes. You need to eat with them. You need to get them to give you things. You know, there's no incentive to have conflicts with them. So the Indian Navy does actually, I think, lead the way in a positive understanding of, of the Arabs. And then this is fed through into quite a lot of literature that's written back home, like Wellstead, uh, his two books about Arabia, which become very influential. And then some of uh, the Indian Navy actually go undercover and, and, and you know, dress up as Arabs. There's this stereotype which um, John Buchan developed later on in his novel Green Mantle about you know, the, the Middle East in the First World War, in which Sandy Arbuthnot becomes a whirling dervish. You know, his, his hero, Sandy Arbuthnot, becomes so attuned to the Arab lifestyle that he can actually dress as an Arab and nobody uh, nobody uh, is any the wiser you know because for Buck in any way some British people are so able to to absorb the Arab lifestyle that they can inhabit it. And Buchan actually got this, I think, from a character that's in one of Wellstead's books called Wybird, who, who dresses up and goes undercover in Basra uh, in 1830, 1831. And Wellstead comes across him and you know, rumbles his disguise and so on. So the idea of the Briton who becomes basically an honorary Arab goes quite a long way back, but they are a minority. I think for most Britons, it's a fairly pragmatic relationship, but it's a relationship that is is forged from pretty early on. Let's talk about archaeology, because this was obviously a major area of interest for uh, British officials. Obviously, many of them were taking out ancient artefacts and discoveries from Ottoman territories, stealing them, or at least taking them under rather flimsy premises. You talk about a number of individuals in the book, figures probably who should be more notorious than they are. Uh, it wasn't just Lord Elgin, basically. Everyone was at it, it seems. So how does your your book approach this subject? Yes, I I, I do talk about quite a few of them. I mean, I, mean, I suppose my, my, my basic argument, because I'm approaching this primarily from a political perspective, I'm quite keen to make the point that most archaeology uh, at this period has a political element. And this is particularly the case with Layard's excavations in Nineveh, that he is sent by Stratford Canning, the ambassador in Constantinople, to Nineveh, first of all, as, as part of an attempt to familiarise himself with the local political situation, because they think that he should become uh, an attaché to help with the border 
negotiations between the Ottomans and the Persians, which is, is a theme of the 1840s. But also, Canning and Layard quickly see that by sending him to Mosul, he, he can get local influence and he can, in a way, represent British influence and the, the, uh, the influence of the ambassador from Constantinople in the discussions between the Nestorians and the Kurds and, and the local Ottomans about trying to stabilise Kurdistan after the Nestorian massacre of 1843. So I see Layard's role in archaeology always as having this political side, as it was also for the French, who were also doing archaeology, because Botta, the man who dug up Corsabad just north of Nineveh, was the, the French consul in Mosul. So the British and the French are competing for influence in Mosul, uh, if you like, in the 1840s, and competing also as archaeologists. So so the, the element of competition over artefacts, uh, over taking artefacts back to London and Paris, is really an echo of the political competition Though there's also a political collaboration as well of a sort. It's quite a compli complicated relationship because they see themselves both as Enlightenment discoverers, uh, so they are willing to collaborate. But anyway, yes, mo most archaeology obviously required a certain amount of political clout in order to achieve anything. And the quid pro quo was that, yes, they took the, the stuff back if they could. That, again, of course, required quite a lot of British infrastructure to do that. Layard's achievement really was, was not so much the archaeological, but actually the, the, the organisation of the whole thing, both the organisation of the local labourers and then the organisation of sending these massive slabs down the Tigris all the way to Basra and sending them back to Britain. But he, he doesn't seem to have any qualms about what he's doing. He thinks that this is an Enlightenment project, that the museums of Europe are the natural places for these these things to rest, that they won't be looked after locally. Uh, of course, they hadn't even been discovered locally. So I think most locals knew that these mounds north of Mosul contained the ancient civilization of Nineveh, just that they didn't think to do anything about it. So yes, archaeology is a theme, but it, it's related with, to the politics. And actually, with the Ottoman-Persian boundary negotiations, when they don't get anywhere because of various local tensions, they have to go back to doing more archaeology. So the archaeology is always there for them to do more of if, if the politics is not fruitful. Now, just to conclude, the book presents a challenge to Edward Said and the literature surrounding Orientalism. You say at one point, quote, the Ottoman Empire was a much more durable and significant presence than the Saidian model recognised. An assumption is often made that Britain aimed to impose constitutionalism on the Ottoman Empire. But the central principles of the Tanzimat programme of 1839 were designed by Ottoman bureaucrats, not British liberals. So basically, you're arguing that things were rather more complicated and the Ottoman Empire had actually more agency than is sometimes suggested in the literature. So could you just dig into this broader theme for us? Yes. Well, first of all, I, I, I don't see myself as a controversialist. Uh, I, I don't see myself as sort of taking on Saeed. I only give him a brief mention. I've benefited enormously both from his own book and from all the other books that have clearly been influenced by him. And I, I think we're at that stage where you know we've absorbed so much of the argument that we just take it as granted. I, I take it certainly as granted. What I'm saying there is that, you know, this is a political history. It's quite fine grained. It, it talks about 
periods um, being different from other periods. And so I'm quite keen to make distinctions that, that British people do things at certain points that they can't do at other points. There are differences of opinion between Britain and between London and Bombay and Constantinople and the local consuls. There's no one great British imperial ideology, if you like. A lot of the book is about arguments between British people. And so, you know, I'm, I'm quite keen to get away from the idea that there is a, a uniform British imperialism in this period. Anyway, it may change later. That's not what the book, you know, the book stops in in the late 50s. But the particular points you, you made just now about the agency of the Ottoman Empire, I do believe that, but I believe that not because of anything that I've researched. I believe it because of books that have recently been written by Ottoman scholars themselves, which have made that point. And I've learned a lot from them, and particularly Ozan Ozavsky, who wrote a very good book published last year about Ottoman agency in international relations in, in the 19th century, from which I drew a good deal. And he's also very influential in my reading of the Tanzimat, though he's not the only person to to make the point that the Ottoman government is pretty confident in the late 30s about what it's trying to do. It's trying to increase its central power. It's trying to impose penal codes. It's trying to establish sort of a, a law-based approach to government on a stronger footing, Islamic law. So, you know, in a way, I'm trying to say the British try to increase their influence in the areas of the Middle East because they recognise that Ottoman power in Constantinople and the influence of other European powers in Constantinople is uh, actually quite strong. And it needs, in a way, to be turned turn to account by the, the British. I mean, their attempts in the 1840s to try to revise the Tanzimat, to try to make it more liberal, are an attempt to try to turn the Ottoman Empire in a more liberal direction because they worry about Russian influence over it. But in general, I, I, think, I, I think they do see, by the 1830s, 1840s, I think they do see Ottoman power in Constantinople as, as, as quite strong, unlike in the 1800s, 18, 1810 period, when I think they, they did think it was on its last legs because, because of the Napoleonic Wars. That was Jonathan Parry. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 178. Don't forget, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support us by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 Euros, or £2.00. 50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe and I always enjoy hearing from listeners so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is, among many other things, a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've also got a Slack channel now for signed up members who want more, and they've also started publishing high quality original on the ground reporting for their subscribers. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book 
talk in a couple of weeks. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.